Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I am uncomfortable every time I'm talking about race, pretty much, unless unless I'm talking to a, a white person who is clearly either an idiot or mostly just an idiot. You know, I, it's intimidating. It's, it's hard to talk about because we're not free of it, you know? Hola, welcome to the fourth episode of Absolutely Not, the podcast dedicated to debunking all things absolutely incorrect. On today's episode, my friend Kelsey and I explore the ways in which white women, despite the innocence we retain in the eyes of society at large, still tend to be quite harmful. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, welcome to episode four. I'm here with one of my favorite white ladies on the planet, Miss Kelsey. Um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself really quickly and some, you know, relevant identities that you'd like to share, where you're from, what you do, all that. Um, my name is Kelsey Peter. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm from Orlando, Florida, and I work currently at a nonprofit in New York City. I met Leanna actually teaching through Teach for America. We were in Teach for America Los Angeles together. Now I work at a homeless shelter for young people in the city. Awesome. We will get to Teach for America hopefully in this episode, um, but I do want to quickly ask you about Florida. Um, especially as somebody who grew up in California and has never spent any significant time anywhere other than the most liberal and blue cities of America. Um, so what is that like? You know, and we'll definitely get into the fact that like racism is very much alive and well everywhere. But I am very curious about like the hard shell racism that you've seen that I haven't. So yeah, break it down for me. What's Florida really like? What's the truth? Well, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't difficult for me. It wasn't like... It wasn't a thing that was ever in my field of vision almost. So like the things that we talk about now, it's, I experienced a lot more rage and frustration and anger and like just disappointment when I go back to my hometown and I go back to Florida rather than experiencing that growing up uh, just because I was so much a product of my environment. Um, So, okay. So then now how do you deal with that? I feel like a lot of people have been really wondering how to have these tough conversations with friends and family. Like over the past couple of months, I've seen and been part of like the uptick in sharing resources for a wide range of issues, but specifically Black Lives Matter. Um, And I know you have too, because I follow you, but um, what has your experience with that been? Because mine is very much like an echo chamber, the occasional person like asking follow-up questions, but very few people have tried to slide into my DMs with the attack. Like I imagine your experience has been a little bit different. So how has that gone? <laughs> it definitely has been a little bit. I mean, truly, though, I really can't complain, obviously. Um, it's a very small burden to bear. But it has, I have faced some pushback, some like really weird textbook white fragility has been present in my DMs, specifically around calling people out for not posting about it. I just use the term white fragility, and it's going to be helpful to make sure that you know what I'm talking about moving forward for the rest of the podcast. So if you don't know already, white fragility is basically just a reference to white people's defensiveness when their views on race and racism are challenged. I mean, white people find so much comfort in like this weird argument that like social media quote like doesn't matter and that yeah. I have no <laughs> followers. So like it doesn't matter if I post a black square and like 
but it it does like <laughs> I understand that like social media by itself and I think everyone understands this that social media by itself doesn't you know isn't the one thing moving like you know taking this movement along but it's still a conversation and you still should be part of the conversation and I think the biggest thing I want to challenge like my friends from home about is if you haven't posted why is that? I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like you should be posting on social media to check some boxes because that's obviously not the point, but I still think people need to like, instead of worrying about getting it right, like just taking a step forward and like just using their voice to say something. Do you think that's the driving force, the, the fear of not getting it right though? Because it sounds like people are coming at you right? They're, they're coming at you for saying things, which is like, they could have very much just stayed silent. There's no reason for them to do that other than, right? Like it's an attack from them onto you for speaking up. Like that's the part that really gets me. It's not so much they're being silent, but they're, they're going so far as to be like, Kelsey, why are you saying something? Yeah. I mean, I think they find it like personally offensive when Mm -hmm. you point out the fact that like, it's inherently racist for you to like, just sit in your white privilege and not say yeah so they feel attacked because it's like the white guilt and the yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent I think a a thing I've heard is literally like I'm not a racist and I don't have to prove that I am like if you're not a racist like what is so hard about like just saying black lives matter is it right offensive about that what and if you are worried about stirring the pot with your circle of friends or with your Instagram followers like who the fuck are your Instagram followers you know like and I don't mean to say it like people who don't use social media should be hopping on social media and like doing what, you know, you and I have been doing and like sharing as many resources as possible and everything they see. But I still think that you have a voice and you shouldn't be using that voice to post pictures of your brunch. Yeah. So, th- okay. So this is really interesting because we're having this conversation like late July or mid July. Um, and I feel like this is the point at which, the people who maybe were more inclined to say something and repost stuff for a while have stopped. And it was very much like predicted, right? There were, there are plenty of, of black folks, plenty of just people in general being like, just watch, right? Just watch. They're going to, there's going to be the fatigue, the allyship fatigue, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that's kind of like where I wanted to, to shift our conversation because like as interesting as it is for me to talk about the people in the MAGA hats and the, the hard shell racist, I think, what you and I are more equipped to talk about is like our specific position in this. So I want to think more about like the people in our circles. And that being said, like if you are a white person listening, specifically white women, like please don't turn this off. If you feel that you're being subtweeted, you are being subtweeted. Like, let me be very clear. I am talking directly to you. The reason that I'm doing that is because if you won't listen to me, like who will you listen to? And that if it causes you to shut down and get defensive, then you're going to be, you're very much the problem that we're about to address. Like you're the precise issue. Um, So stick with us, lean into the discomfort. I would say, Um, take a deep breath right now, white ladies. Like we got to do this. We got to go on this journey right now. Um, And so that being said, I want to start with like two foundational ideas. I think that go hand in hand to create toxic white feminism, which is what we're going to, we're about to try to tackle. Um, The first one is like, the misconception or the disconnect surrounding what racism or being racist actually is. And it kind of goes back to what you were just saying, Kelsey, about like how people feel that they're being attacked when you're talking about racism because they believe that it is, you know, an individual sin. So if you don't mind, Kelsey, can you read that Robin D'Angelo quote about 
you know, the definition of a racist. Yeah, sure. She says, if your definition of a racist is someone who holds conscious dislike of people because of race, then I agree that it is offensive for me to suggest that you are racist when I don't know you. I also agree that if this is your definition of racism and you are against racism, then you are not a racist. Now, breathe. I am not using this definition of racism, and I'm not saying that you are immoral. If you can remain open as I lay out my argument, it should soon begin to make sense. Yeah. So, again, really important to remember that by saying racism is an individual sin, you advance the myth that makes it nearly impossible to tackle racism because it's actually a collective worldview. Also note that, like, I'm, I'm choosing her words not because she was the first to say this, but because you know, she's a clear example of someone that understands that white people will be more receptive to her than a black person or a person of color. And she's leveraged her in-group status to do that through her work. Um, And that's kind of what we're trying to do here. But like to make really, really clear, racism goes beyond an individual person's morality. It's certainly a part of it. But when we're talking about it and when we're saying you're racist, you know, it goes beyond like your conscious decisions. And again, that brings me to like the specificity of white women, which I think that white women have played a very particular role in upholding white supremacy. Um, And that their role is, for me at least, like, more frustrating almost than the role of white men, because by virtue of experiencing, like, some marginalization as women, you know, you would perhaps expect or hope that they know better, uh, whatever that means, Um, when in fact, you know, what they've done time and again is they weaponize the white femininity instead, and then, like, weaponize the fact that they're partially marginalized to claim that they understand oppression and that they're being oppressed, and, um, and in fact, use that to stop progress. Um, So again, I'm going to use a quote. I swear it's going to be the last one. Um, This is actually from an opinion piece in the New York Times by a Black man named Charles M. Bloat. He writes, quote, specifically, I'm enraged by white women weaponizing racial anxiety, using their white femininity to activate systems of white terror against Black men. This has long been a power white women realized they had and that they exerted. This was again evident when a white woman in New York City's Central Park told a Black man, a bird watcher, that she was going to call the police and tell them that he was threatening her life. This was not innocent, nor benign, nor divorced from historical context. Throughout history, white women have used the violence of white men and the institutions these men control as their own muscle. From the beginning, anti-Black white terrorists used the defense of white women and white purity as a way to wrap violence in valor. Carnage became chivalry. We often like to make white supremacy a testosterone-fueled masculine expression, but it is just as likely to wear heels as a hood. Like, damn, that's, first of all, poetic, but second of all, like, carnage becomes chivalry. Wild. That floors me because that is, I see that so much in Florida and Floridian history, whether or not people I grew up with know about or even want to know about the history of, I mean, what comes to mind for me is Emmett Till and the countless lynchings of Black men in the South. And so often the common theme was this defense of white female purity or whatever what have you I mean I lived my life I lived my life never thinking twice about these things I think like a lot of white people thinking that this was just part of my history book and that this was just over absolutely um so with those ideas in mind like I think we have to model and that's a teacher word so the teacher jumped out but like we have to model that you know within our own lives first before we can you know call out other white women I think we have to make sure that we're doing the same the same thing that we're asking of them so I do want to first start 
by talking about us and talking about how we know each other. So you, you already explained this a little bit, but we met at what I refer to now as like the white savior convention of the world, also known as Teacher America. Um, and I don't want to get into TFA specifically, at least not yet. I do want to focus more on the question of like, how did you navigate being a white woman in a non-white setting um, tasked with educating kids whose lived experiences did not at all mirror your own in many important ways? Um, and do you think on a larger scale that we should have even taught in the settings that we taught in? I mean, looking back on that experience now, I feel like it was soaked with a lot of white saviorism. I mean, as an institution, again, I don't want to necessarily like just lay that all on TFA, but but also as a person. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think, I'm not saying we can't talk about TFA. I think it is important to mention that Teach for America was founded by a white woman, Wendy Cobb. And was founded on this idea that if you can get students from like elite institutions um, into under-resourced schools, into schools in low-income communities, that like you will vastly improve the chances in the lives of the of the children there, which is a really fascinating premise. It's it's evolved in a lot of ways, and I think they they have actively tried to push against that. They have a way more um, racially diverse, like socioeconomically diverse core now than they ever did before. Um, but it, but it's still, that's the starting point, right? The genesis of TFA was very much like, if you take these super privileged people and put them in these classrooms, good things will happen, which I think is flawed in a lot of ways. So us being there, we, de- we definitely can't remove it from what TFA is, but like, why did you personally join, I guess, maybe as a good starting point? Like what drew you to that work? Um, when you had a myriad of other options for how you could how you could spend two years of your life? I mean, I did, I, I was interested in Teach for America because I realized I realized two things. And one was that I felt like it was kind of my calling. I felt like I love to work with kids and it didn't really entice me to like go work in like a community that I had grown up in. And I think you want to go teach white kids because same, same. I'm asking you this question because I'm, I'm prepared to answer it as well for myself, but like why specifically join a core where you knew for a fact the students you taught were going to be either black or Brown or both and not go back and teach, you know, in Florida? Because I felt like I knew that the educational inequity was a thing. And I don't think I recognized appropriately, like my whiteness and how much that would, you know, play into white saviorism. Like, I don't think that I really understood those concepts at the time. I think, I think when I made the decision to join Teach for America, it felt like a lot of signs for me, like quote unquote signs for me pointed to like, okay, like teach for America, city year, like these, these things like that, where you have the opportunity to work with kids and work with kids who, who haven't had the same opportunities as me. And like, also like the pure injustice of that all infuriated me. So again, I don't think I, I recognize as much as I should have like, how much my whiteness was going to play into my role as a teacher. I will say though, I will commend, I mean, I feel like my Teach for America experience did open me up, like open up my eyes to a lot of these concepts that I probably wouldn't have, would that I certainly would not have ever heard of if I would have gone and taught in a white school or a wealthy school for that matter. It would have never been okay for me to be a teacher in the elementary school that I went to elementary school with. Parents would have Because you're saying you you didn't have enough training. Is that what you're saying? No, I didn't know. I I mean, so so for people that don't know how TFA works, we literally received, what was it? Six weeks of training in the summer. 
And then they said, here you go. And we were teachers, which is absolutely just not (laughs) something that should happen. Um, And so I guess my, my question then from there is like, you talked a lot about how you, the things you didn't think about going in, but now in retrospect, and I'm sitting also in retrospect, which is very sad, but after four years and after two years, respectively, like looking back, do you feel like we did more harm than good, more good than harm? Had there been a person from the communities that we taught in that was, you know, able to to have that job, do you think they would have been better positioned, right? Because I think that like inherent in this model is this idea that we're the exception, But I think a lot about my kids. I think about, you know, I had frank conversations with my kids about like who I am, what's my identity, what does it mean that I'm standing in front of them versus somebody that might look more like them. Also, this is a little bit more complex as a white Latina. Quick little detour here. I just said white Latina because for those of you that don't know, being Latinx, which is the gender neutral term for Latino or Latina, is actually an ethnicity, not a race. So you can be Latinx and white or black or indigenous or, as is the case for many, many people, a combination of the three. I want to point it out because I think there is a tendency for white or white passing uh, Latinx people, including myself, to think of their whiteness as different. While there's definitely some merit to that, I think it's also important to pause and acknowledge that simply being Latinx doesn't mean you're exempt from supporting or perpetuating white supremacy, and it actually shows up quite often through Latinx-specific colorism and racism. So even though I shared part of my ethnicity with my students, it's important for me to call out that my perceived race has shaped my life and opportunities differently than it might for some of them. All right, back we go. Right, that I have a couple more layers in there as well, but you know, at the end of the day, like I tried to tell myself, okay, I loved them and they knew that I loved them. And it, it, and it on one hand, is it that simple that I did my absolute best or, you know, how much better could it have been if our roles were filled by somebody from that community that they saw themselves in more readily? I mean, I think that that's the dream to have people from the communities that we're teaching in be leaders and educators in that community. But I, I think about you know, if, if I could have gone to school for more time, I don't, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, it just feels like the TFA model sets, sets up, you know, poor kids or kids of color or kids in low-income communities to be guinea pigs in a way that white kids never have to be, you know, and that's not to say that like, we can't do good work, but just the premise of we're putting these people in, into these positions who have had such little training, what that means inherently is like, it's fine because it's still better than what they would get otherwise, which I think is a really like gross thing to, to assume. It is not okay to assume that for sure. The the bar should be so much higher than like, I like kids, so I'll become a teacher. I'm maternal. so Like I'll become a teacher. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think you just touched on a really important point there, which is who are teachers? I looked this up beforehand, but I think it's 79% of public school teachers are white and 76% are female. So that means that by and large, teaching Amer- teaching in America is done by white women specifically. I think it's for a lot of the reasons that you said, right? That it's attached to this like maternal instinct, this idea that this is this has been a historical, historically uh, female or feminized is that a word? Feminized um, profession, um, but also this like propensity for white women to want to be white saviors. I, th- I don't think we can ignore that. I think back to Freedom Riders, <laughs> which, you know, was my favorite movie for so long, and now I'm very ashamed to admit that, but. I'm not just gonna give you my respect because you're called a teacher. White people always wanting their respect like they deserve it for free. I'm a teacher. 
doesn't matter what color I am. And I was like, that's amazing, right? She, she went outside of herself. And for her, it was like an adventure. And, you know, um, and for TFA, for a lot of people as well, the, the premise that it's only two years and then you can leave. And that's the, the expectation is like, well, for you, it's just this thing that you add on to your resume. And it's like coming in and being, being a tourist in these communities. And of course, you're not going to make any sort of, I don't know, it's tricky because, because if you're there for those two years and you're teaching your heart out and you're doing the best you can within those two years, then certainly that's better than somebody who's not invested, even if they are from the community, maybe, question mark, or, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So, so yeah. (laughs) While you were talking, it kind of reminded me of something that I really wanted to bring up just in regards to white saviorism and programs like Teach for America. I feel like what we're talking about right now, it's like kind of hard for us to put our finger on what it is. Like, yes, we tried. We, we wanted to make this impact, like our quote unquote hearts were in the right places, but like, do these programs spend money and time and effort in addressing white saviorism in talking about racism in through the, in the, in, in white people, do they talk about implicit bias? Yeah. That's what I was going to say is like, is it even possible in the context that we were in to be anti-racist educators? Like, can you be a white anti-racist educator of kids of color? I, I think about it a lot because, you know, my school was pretty much 100% Latinx and my students and I would have conversations about race wherein where I was positioned as the person that was teaching them about race, which is wild um, because like my experiences with race have been way less poignant than theirs, even though they may not have the, the language to, to explain that at this point. Like, I was like, oh, I'm teaching them about white privilege. I'm teaching them about police brutality. And it just felt really weird to me because I'm like, these are also not things that I've experienced, um, what white privilege I have. But like, I'm in this position to teach them and to make them anti-racist. But should I even, I don't know, should I even be doing that? Is that even possible to do when by virtue of like me teaching them, I'm the one that's in power? When I look back on my own experience, I think it was the hardest but also most rewarding experience of my life. And I don't think I was the perfect anti-racist teacher either, but I think that I did a better job my second year. And I think I would have done a better job my third year and then a better job my fourth year and even a better job my fifth year. And, you know, it doesn't excuse the fact that I was imperfect that first year. And it doesn't excuse all the ways that we were imperfect, but I also look back on my, my time as a teacher and, Again, I think the people that the, the, my coworkers that I was surrounded by and feeling very much like, you know, with a few exceptions that, that they didn't care about my kids and they didn't care about their kids and they, about but, oppression, but, they didn't but care. But the truth about- is like, they're there still and we're not. So what does that say? Right. You just said you could have been better in your fifth year, but you're not in your fifth year because you left. I left. And again, like maybe they're getting better while you're gone and they're more committed. I don't think they were ever, I don't think that there was ever. Maybe not the specific ones that that are in, in, in mind, but the people, but bottom line is that we're not there anymore. We left. And there's a reason that we left. And I mean, I can tell you the reason why I left. I, I left because I wasn't getting paid enough money. There was no trajectory for my career. And I, but it wasn't, but it wasn't personal enough for the two of us. 
to stay and fight through that. I'm not, I'm not discrediting or say, or, or removing value from the fact that being a teacher is really hard and really unsustainable and teachers leave for all kinds of reasons because it's an incredibly difficult career and that that's all super valid. But I am just trying to point out that like you and I did not have personal ties to the community beyond us being there as teachers and where, you know, maybe that would have been enough to make somebody want to stick it out. There's an easy exit for people. Yeah. For white people like me to go in and leave you know yeah. to go in and do their thing and then when it's no longer convenient for them or whatever I'm not, I'm not saying that this was my my case specifically but you know for people to go in and then like decide that they're tired of it and move on to something else I felt enraged by by the systems in place and of course I still feel that way but I think that's more of why I left but I think I, I realized that I could move almost a couple steps like ahead of this on a more macro level. I can relate, right? I'm doing the same thing. It looks different for the two of us, right? But that's my, my thinking as well in pursuing law is this idea that like as a teacher, um, the work that I was doing was was very much real in the sense that you can definitely create change on a person-to-person level. And that's also selfishly why I wanted to be a teacher because I was like, I can show up every day and through my individual action, right, I can affect positive change. But after a certain point, you get so frustrated by seeing how, you know, schools house, schools are microcosms of society and they house all of society's ills. And, you know, after seeing it over and over again, I can relate to wanting to be, to being like, all right, within this classroom, as much as I can provide love to my students and help them maybe as individuals, I want to do something that keeps this from being an issue in the first place, right? Um, and so I think that's actually a pretty good transition, though, into like nonprofits and how, I mean, it's super problematic that we need nonprofits in the United States in the first place. Um, but that being said, like, I also don't think it's escapable. I also looked this up, but in the nonprofit sector, white women make up not as much, but 46% of that area. Um, so like, why, why are white women in this, you know, why are they drawn to that work? And what does it mean to have white women leading these nonprofits and leading this work for communities that they're not part of? Like, why? <laughs> I mean, what it ends up meaning is that with white women in charge or white people in charge, those voices get centered and those experiences get centered. And I mean, there is a white savior complex deeply ingrained in the entire nonprofit sector. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to bring up this idea that like white women specifically are are usually really down to like open their wallets for like a one time donation to a charity or, you know, are very down to do a mission trip or support an organization really publicly at a gala or something like that. And I'm talking I'm talking clearly about like middle and upper class women. Um, but <laughs> They are also the ones that are unwilling to vote to have higher taxation on themselves to, you know, provide sustainable alternatives for the kinds of things that they support once a year really publicly and get kudos for. Or, you know, they're at the end of the day, they're not going to send their kid to the public school because they think it's bad. I keep saying they when, like, I guess we should be saying we in the sense that, like, what is this? how do we remove that space or how do we make white women see that even if they're like the do-gooders or even if they think that their entire work, which could be a nonprofit is in the service of social justice, that they could still be um, perpetuating racism and oppression. Like if they're in a position of power and they're silencing people of color, which is an experience that I've had multiple people tell me about that they've witnessed, that they've been part of, that has happened to them, right? Like within 
the irony of all ironies within a social justice organization, like white women silencing people of color, um, right? Like, how do we get white women to to be more critical about their positions? How do we like? I'm I'm over here like, should they all step down? <laughs> like, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, I mean. So people, so that's the thing. I don't know how to enforce CEOs and nonprofits to think, like reflect upon this critically. Other than I will say that I do feel like with the murder of George Floyd, it's, I mean, people are calling it out. People are calling it out more now, more than ever, you know, work your way up literally floor by floor and you get to the admin floor. It's, 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 yeah. And I, I don't know how to get people to reflect on that other than by pointing that out repeatedly. Yeah. And I think so often like this, the white fragility and the defensiveness and, you know, people who are the heads of nonprofits who don't get a pass because they've done hard work and they've done even, you know, yeah. meaningful work. I, but I, but I think the, the key reflection for these people and, you know, for myself included but I'm, but I mostly, when I say these people, I'm thinking of executives who are making decisions on behalf of these found, you know, foundations and nonprofits is, you know, you can't, you can't get this conversation right as a white person. You can't get it right all the time, a hundred percent of the time, because your lived experiences, not to mention, you know, like your privileges as a white person simply cannot equal that of a person of color. And, you, and, and. Mm-hmm. And that, that needs to be reconciled. I'm like chomping at the bit because I feel like you just hit on something super, super important, but I think it's the like, uh, oppression Olympics thing, right? This idea that as white women and what we said a lot earlier, right? Weaponizing your white womanhood or your white femininity to claim some form of marginalization or oppression in order to discredit other people's claims that you yourself are oppressing someone. Um, and like, I feel like white women specifically cling to this so hard and this idea that if somebody confronts you, whether it's like a, a blatant confrontation or just a mere suggestion, or even a, an Instagram story post that wasn't even directed at you, right. It immediately triggers this response in white women to be like, that's not me. It can't be me because X, Y, and Z pointing to my lived experience, I've experienced oppression, whatever, whatever, or pointing to my work that I've done. Um, and it's like a fear, I don't know, like I'm trying to get at the root of what it is other than obviously, right, trying to avoid any accountability. Like what is the correct response? Let's help our white women out and, and for what they should actually do. I feel like I would challenge white women or, and white people in general when like, when there is someone telling you that you have done or said something problematic, just just sit there, just shut up, just sit there, just sit there and and listen to it. and And like, just understand you're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it right. You're not going to be perfect. But in that instance, don't respond with defensiveness. Respond with, I, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Or if you're not even ready to apologize, like, I'm listening. Hey, I'm listening. I'm learning. I need a minute to process this. Yeah. And you also, yeah, because also you don't want to be like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. So why do you feel that way? Like, no, 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 don't, don't burden other people to educate you as to why what you've said and done is problematic. Like literally just Google it or, or just, like, just like DM me or another, you know, person. Person, yes! and it's complicated, right? With the virtual, virtue signaling, like I, I'm not immune 
from that at all. But I also think that a lot of what I felt like my role has been in posting very publicly about how I feel about Black Lives Matter. And I want to signal to white people that like, this is how I feel. And if you're not sure, like if you don't get it, if this is novel to you, but like you want to do better, like please slide in my DMs. Like that works for me. Absolutely. Um, And that brings me to like the other thing that I feel like white women are really drawn to and and you and I have talked about this but like the intent argument that like if their intention was good then they're absolved and I'm like your intent literally doesn't mean shit if the outcome was still causing harm well what you just said intent versus outcome right like I feel like so oftentimes because white people and our opinions and thoughts have been so centered in the conversation we are the default I think I think because everything has revolved around us for so long that our intent becomes so much bigger than the outcome what you said and I think that like laying that down and saying you know you can have good intentions and and in my experience when people have said like that's problematic they haven't been like I hate you and this is problematic for saying this it's like like don't like don't freak out you need to reframe it for yourself as a, like it's an act of care. If somebody is very much so. the energy to even have the conversation with you, that means that like either A, you're causing so much harm that it needs to stop or like B, they do have faith that you can change, right? The very least you can do is listen. <laughs> the very least. While we're, while we're talking about how, how calling people out is an act of care, I mean, it also can be like, fuck you. This is annoying. Like, for Which you. is also valid, though. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much. So I don't, I just mean to say, like, I don't yeah. want white people listening to this to, to think, like, oh, well, like, my black coworker called me out the other day, so she must, like, really care about <laughs> No, no, no. You probably, like, I'm not saying that, like, you have, you know, you're, you're just, like, a perfect little angel. Like, you know, like, it might have, it might have actually been, fuck you. Like, it right. might have been. Thank you, yeah. And I think also, in terms of, like, having these conversations, how you react in these conversations, like, I think, again, it's really important to remember that if you are somebody that is invested in being an ally or whatever, everything that you have formulated for yourself, you have to keep reminding yourself that it's incomplete and that it is imperfect and that it still requires work. And that if you can view any of these uncomfortable conversations as opportunities for growth, then automatically they become so much more bearable. Um, And I think that that is your responsibility, certainly as a, a white woman who espouses feminism, for example, or as a white woman who works in a nonprofit, but also just as, as a white person in general who, who gives a shit, who, you know, is willing to say that they care and that they're not racist. Like, that's what that looks like. Going back to white women specifically, another really infuriating tendency, I think, is, and it's been given all of these terms, but like tone policing or spiritual bypassing, right? These ideas that like white women specifically cling to their versions of white femininity and the way that you should talk about things. And then if people are outside of that, they shut down. So if somebody seems angry at you, you shut down and think that you don't have to listen to them anymore because they're angry and they're not communicating it to you in your language. Or that like, if somebody disagrees with you and, but you're supposed to be on the same team, that it's causing division and that we should just be unified and have love and blah, blah, blah. Like that is incredibly infuriating. Um, when when you are somebody that is that is claiming to to be anti-racist or not racist at the very least i'm challenging white women to to really stop themselves anytime they feel uncomfortable and to be like am i actually am i actually in physical danger right now (laughs) and the answer is no and so if the answer is no then listen and and do your best to be open um and do your best to learn yeah (laughs) 
I mean, I really think that's the first step is shutting up and listening and, and also recognizing, right. That like when someone is engaging in a conversation with you, like you don't have to know the answers. Like I definitely don't know the answer. Like don't freak out and think that you have to have the perfect answer and the most like quote unquote woke and aware and super amazing response to everything. Like sometimes just admitting that you don't know is, is the most powerful thing. And I have, I am uncomfortable every time I'm talking about race, pretty much, unless, unless I'm talking to a a white person who is clearly either an idiot or mostly just an idiot you know it's intimidating it's it's hard to talk about because we're not free of it you know it's not something that I can that I can really like preach about because even though I feel like you know maybe I've maybe I've come off that way this conversation that I'm that I'm preaching about it but I mean hopefully not because I don't know everything yeah I mean I think that's that's very helpful um and you know not to be confused with like being let off the hook Kelsey's definitely not saying like cool so just live live your life the way you've been living it and then anytime anybody brings this up just say I don't know and move on like that's not what Kelsey is saying um but what she is saying is and and for the people that perhaps think a little bit more like me like I think about all the time how I'll get tongue-tied in this really desperate desire to make sure everything I'm saying is sounding correct right um and and making sure that I'm not offending anybody and the result of that is like perhaps my language is overly academic maybe it is really great and it's checking all these boxes and it's making me sound like somebody that knows what they're talking about but at the end of the day and this is something that like Deontay my my partner reminds me of pretty often at the end of the day like you know language is a starting point and if you can have all the right language and still be causing harm any language can be performative for sure like I mean that's kind of what when you were talking just now that's the word performative came to my mind right like and when you were talking about how language is just a first step or language can be part of the conversation but like and to bring this back to social media like posting on your social media while it is engaging in conversation and it is this form of language and it's this form of like participating kind of in the discourse it's not the end-all be-all just reminds me a lot of like of course, like when I was talking about how, like, just acknowledge that you don't understand, like, that's not a cop out, like, you don't get to cop out of your discomfort, but just just realize that you probably don't know, because you are white, you know, your intentions don't trump everything else that you're doing. And I yeah. hate to say the word trump, honestly, I hate to say it. Like, <laughs> I just keep it, out, I'll keep it out. Okay, since we're on the topic of Donald Trump, if you or your family agrees with the assertion that the phrase Black Lives Matter is some kind of political statement meant to be divisive, that excuse just doesn't work anymore. This movement is about basic human rights, and black people are demanding their rights in a country built on racism. Period. All right, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, so, so, you know, we have to then think about, okay, so what, what does that look like? And I think it's really important also to acknowledge how new this is for so many white people um, and how recent we've kind of like entered the chat, you know, and how many of us have exited the chat because it's not fashionable anymore or it's not in your face anymore or you just got tired of it. Um, people have unfollowed me because yes. they don't want to be in the chat anymore. So now we're going to read out the handles of everybody who has blocked us. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that brings us to, I think, our absolutely nots. Are there any 
that you want to recap or any new ones that you want to share? Um, so first of all, absolutely do not claim or think that just because you have black people in your family or you know black people or you have black friends that you are automatically just free of racism and it doesn't impact your day-to-day life at all um and love black people right like you can love black people and still have racism yes absolutely (laughs) you can still perpetuate racism i mean nobody is free of racism Yep. Okay. What else? Um, so absolutely do not just take the easy route and shut down in conversations about race. Don't start listing off all the ways that you think that you're not racist when someone's giving you the time and the energy to help you think a little bit more deeply about what your impact is. You just have to shut up. You have to take a step back and your responsibility is to listen. Um, so just be comfortable with the discomfort because that gives way to growth if you let it ultimately. Yeah. Um, I would also like to add some absolutely not for my fellow white women. Um, you know, you can always do better. So I'm looking at you if you call the police still. This is something that like I personally have come a long way, I would say, still have a long way to go. But like don't call the police, right? Like I <laughs> I would say for anything, um, but if that's too extreme for you, and if you're like, what? No, they're, what if there's an emergency? Whatever. Okay, so if you are about to call the police, then you need to ask yourself some questions. Um, because I think there's just literally no way that as a white woman, you can escape the fact that white women calling the police on people of color, on black men specifically, um, is not an issue. So if you are about to call the police, like ask yourself why, ask yourself in, if you're in actual physical danger yourself. Number two, is it any of your business? You know, number three, are you making assumptions about somebody based on their skin color? If it was someone that looked like your dad or your brother, would you still be making this call? Um, you know, or if it was a woman, would you still be making this call? I don't know what number I'm on. Let's say it's number four. <laughs> Could you <laughs> live with sending somebody to their death? That sounds dramatic as fuck, but like, at the end of the day, it's not. If you call the police and the situation escalates and that person, if it's a black person, if it's a black man, if it's a person of color, whoever it might be, if they end up dead, incarcerated, whatever, whatever, you know, the very real possibility is, can you live with that? Are you going to think that it was worth it to make that phone call? And then finally, if you call the police or if somebody else called the police, I think this one is really important. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately what can you do to de-escalate the situation with your physical form and your privilege? Go put yourself, you know, not necessarily in harm's way, but maybe, but not necessarily in harm's way, but like in a way that you can use your relative power or perceived innocence to ensure things de-escalate. If you see somebody being arrested, whether you made the call or not, stay there, film it. Like using using your white womanness in that way, I think is really important to keep in mind specifically with police, but some other absolutely nots is like, if you are in, this is not an absolute, I don't know how to phrase it as one, but like, if you are in nonprofit work, if you are doing something that you think is directly related to social justice, look beyond what you do within your role and more and how you interact with your coworkers in the power dynamics at your organization. Who do you talk over? How long do you talk? I'm doing a horrible job right now because I'm just ranting, but like, how long do you talk? How often are you the first one to talk? How often do you discredit people, you know, kind of either 
explicitly or just like in your own mind when they're sharing ideas and and write them off as somebody because you don't vibe with the way that like they explain things to you and then you know I'm also thinking about like the white women I went to high school with this is this is the subtweet hour if you have no black friends if you have one right or like if if you're if I'm scrolling through your social media and everybody is white what is going on Again, like, don't just go make a black friend to make a black friend to quote, I think it was Yub, but like, ask yourself, how did you arrive at this position in life? If you're in your mid twenties, like we are, why is this the group that you've surrounded yourself with? Why are you comfortable with that? The why, like, that's the really, yeah. like, like, the why is, is huge. And it's, and it's a really big, deep, dark thing, like locked up chest inside some people that is really hard to dig out there and really open up but like unpack that theoretical locked chest like really pull it out unpack it yeah um and also like absolutely do not as a white woman I gotta say this again like engage in oppression olympics and think that like while your experiences of misogyny are very real and very valid and you know you absolutely could be the target of gendered violence i'm not i'm not removing that whatsoever but absolutely do not weaponize that that's like the most foul thing i think you could do don't weaponize that what i mean by that is like don't use that to purport to know something about the lived experiences of like a black woman for example and also this is a new one this might be a hot take but absolutely do not use the term Karen. I think I've also done this personally, so I'm admitting that. But I do think that like as a white woman to say Karens and like and be part of that whole thing is to remove yourself from it and to distance yourself and to claim that you're not one, which like, you know, we know that Karens are an extreme end of the spectrum. But I think it's really important if you are a white woman, when you see behavior like that, to not be like, ah, let me categorize this as this like funny internet meme name thing. And instead be like, that is me right lived out to an extreme um I mean I definitely haven't thought of it that way (laughs) I have not thought of it that way at all I feel like I I don't know that I necessarily go around saying Karen this Karen that um do I find Karen memes hysterical yes I know that's not what you're trying to say but um I I I guess about the value of like the Karen meme in like recognizing how common that is I mean you make a good point that like by using the word Karen you've said that like this is a pattern of a specific type of white woman all I think what I'm trying to say is that I don't want to like absolve us of Karen like behavior because you know while it is funny it also isn't funny I do think it's fine like to make light of it in a lot of ways is like to say like it's so ridiculous and the things that they're doing are so absurd that like humor is the only way we can cope with that and that's fine I kind of feel like it's a bridge, right, to a yeah. bigger conversation. And, and I yeah. feel like I get what you're saying, that, like, it can be really problematic to refer to, you know, to kind of, like, assume that you're exempt or, like, that you're not capable of those same exact care and actions, right? Like, but I do, and again, like, I'm referring, I'm saying, like, oh, well, there's an opportunity to make this a bigger conversation, right, about Karen's. And I think that conversation is kind of happening. Is it happening in every living room? I don't think so. Should it be? Maybe. And does it, but does it have the potential to be? Also, maybe, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. White women of the world, you now know that our DMs are open. So if you're feeling attacked, if you want to talk stuff through, white people in general. Please. If you would like to know a little bit more, like just a little smidge, just a little, you have any questions? Like we're here, we're here. We can talk to you. That's fine.
not because we know everything, but just because we're down to we're down to hash it out with you and share with you what we do know. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, that being said, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Leah. I'm honestly very honored. After all of the amazing guests you've had on your your podcast, I'm super honored to be here. Yeah, so, you should be. <laughs> Bye, Kelsey. All right, love you. Bye. No matter what, it feels like there are always 10 trillion more things I wish we had talked about. That being said, if you're a white person that made it here and do want to talk more, you can find me or Kelsey on Instagram, either at Leanna Lupi or at Kelsey Peter, respectively. Or even better, you can start by diversifying your own social media feeds or bookshelves and seeking out real experts. In addition to some of the things we mentioned in our conversation, I'd also love to recommend Toni Morrison, who I have tried plugging in every episode but have had to cut. Um, She's my number one recommendation for everyone, everywhere, about pretty much everything, so definitely start there. Uh, In addition to opening our minds, I'd also strongly recommend that we open our wallets whenever possible. To the question, are white women harmless? I think the answer is a definitive, absolutely not. However, to the question, can white women mitigate the harm they cause? The answer is absolutely, if they try. Alright, I'm hopping off my soapbox now. I promise I will talk less next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Nos vemos next time on Absolutely Not. Absolutely not.